You know, there's a book that I haven't read yet called The Madness of Crowds, but, you know, The Madness of Crowds is kind of interesting, uh, kind of an idea or, or group think or something like that. And I, I really think one of the best ways to illustrate this is church camp. I don't know how many of you have gone to church camp or worked at church camp or whatever, but there's this really amazing thing you can do with kids at church camp, especially like junior hires. They're the greatest. You break them up into teams. They get to camp. They're like not on teams. A lot of them never met each other. And suddenly you just arbitrarily assign them a team. Sometimes it's a color. Sometimes it's, I remember one camp we went to, it was FBI and CIA, and we had the chance, right? FBI, FBI. And then another camp, I remember we had cheers. All the teams would learn cheers. Talk to the hand. You think you're Superman. So crawl back to your hole because we are on a roll. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Right? I mean, we are just acting all crazy. It is just bonkers. I still remember that one. It's like, you know, you just, and then you can get them to do nutso things. It's like, if you clean your cabin better than the other team cleans their cabin, you get these mystical points that don't mean anything. <laughs> oh, we do? Yes. Yes, you do. What happens at the end of the week when we win? Nothing. <laughs> oh, okay. And guess what? You've got the cleanest cabins you've ever seen in your life. It's incredible. You just got to pit one group and you can mix to another, right? It doesn't have to have any rhyme or reason. You just randomly assign them teams and suddenly they're at war. And then the kids start treating each other funny. It's like, oh, your orange team? No, sir. Oh, your purple team? Great, right? It's like, literally, the bandana that they're wearing suddenly like, makes them friends or enemies. You know, it's just, we just put ourselves in these groups. And some sort of more serious, some more sad example of this might be like this. There's a, it started, there's a story, it started in 1857. This is kind of something that happened in the United States. If you want to kind of give examples of groupthink that's gone bad, where we've kind of, where the madness of crowds or how you want to do it, there's like a million examples. I, I picked two, you, you, just, you, just, you just pick one, okay? It started in 1957. Utah Mormons discovered a wagon train of families on their way to California. For whatever reason, the church members felt threatened by these passerby and unleashed an attack. Not wanting to take blame for the assault, they disguised themselves as Native Americans, a la the Boston Tea Party, and enlisted the help of some type of Indians that I will pronounce their names so incorrectly, I better not bother. The immigrants defended themselves for five days until the Mormon militia approached them with white flags signaling a truce. Low on water and provisions, they gladly accepted the truce and agreed to be escorted into Mormon protection. However, as soon as they left their fortifications, they were murdered and buried in shadow grave, shallow graves. We're one team. They're the other team. It's all it took. You say, what do you mean that's all it takes? Imaginary teams, you imaginarily sign them a color. 
and suddenly they so care and they'll clean their cabin like you've never been able to make them clean before. You know, war brings out sometimes the best and worst in all of us. And there's kind of a sad story that Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman in his book called On Killing, he's a veteran, and what he was describing happened in Vietnam, but I, I don't think we would necessarily need to uh, pick Vietnam. I think we could uh, go ahead and pick any other kind of war story we wanted, but he was specifically talking about Vietnam, and it could be the, like the Malay Massacre is just one example, but anyway... He says this, you put those same kids in the jungle for a while, get them real scared, deprive them of sleep, and let a few incidents change some of their fear to hate, give them a sergeant who's been too many times seen his men killed by booby traps and by lack of distrust, and who feel that the Vietnamese are dumb, dirty, and weak because they're not like them. Add a little mob pressure, and those, hid, those kids who accompany us today will rape like champions. The Malay massacre was when some soldiers went in, and they were ordered to kill like three to 500 Vietnamese that were unarmed. And you know, I, I don't mean to pick on any particular thing, right? It, it happens. We get in these group situations. It's us versus them. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. The, the, the line can be, it could be a different country, but it can be anything. We just, we just, we just do it. It's crazy. And, and the reason I bring this up is because you think about the history of Israel. It has been the Jews or Israel versus the Gentiles, right? It has been us versus the, What was they supposed to do when they were supposed to go in the promised land? Kill everybody. So now Jesus comes and says, oh no, you're all going to be together. I mean, the amount of sort of our group versus their group that they were going to have to overcome is incredible. It's huge. And today we're going to see the first time in which we really, maybe not be the first time it happened, it seems like it's the first time recorded where a totally full Gentile starts being talked about. We're just going to talk a little bit about... Um, Cornelius today, and next time we'll go into more about this transition from Judaism into uh, Christianity. But this is just such a big change. Years and years, generation after generation, it was the Jews versus the Gentiles. The Jews are the good guys, according to the Jews, of course, and the Gentiles are the bad guys. We're supposed to wipe you out like God commanded, and now we're supposed to be saying, what? Equal footing? Before God? What a change. What a change. So we look at verse 1, and it says here, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So Caesarea, this was like a really important city. What, the reason it was so important is because the Roman kind of had one of their main leaders there. And as a matter of fact, we think Pontius Pilate actually probably lived there. There was some archaeology done, and it was found that he was mentioned. He probably lived there. And the reason he was probably in Jerusalem was because he probably traveled around. So he would travel around doing his work. But his actual home base was in Caesarea because this is where the Roman leadership was. Hence, there was a large Roman conglomerate of, of military men. And so Cornelius was ahead of one of these cohorts. This cohort probably wasn't a part of the main military. It was like an auxiliary force that was probably 
over there. And what Cornelius would have been would have been a part of a subgroup of the legion. So the legion was the main military group, and then you kind of had a subgroup, and then you had subgroups of that. And he probably was over, I think it was over about 100 men is probably what he would have been the leader over. And of course, the Roman legions were um, very effective. They kind of changed the world in the fighting style. You went from the phalanx to the short, short, short swords, and the Romans were extremely effective, and Cornelius was a part of this. But now, so we have this man, this Cornelius. He is a full-blown, all-the-way Gentile. There's no, he's not half and half. He's not a Samaritan. He's not, he's, he's got some Jewish heritage as a part of him. He's all the way, 100%, as Gentile as you can get. And, you know, I've recently been talking with someone about Masada a little bit. You know, sometimes some of you know that story when the Romans came and they, they came and they destroyed Israel and some of the people escaped the Masada. But it just kind of illustrates, if you know that story, who are the bad guys to the Jews? The Romans are the bad guys. They are, they are the latest horrible thing that has happened to the Jews and the Jews to say to them, oh no, oh no. Jews, it's fine. These, if, if these Roman people become Christians, you're all on the same team now. Oh, that would have been hard. A devout man who feared God with all his household, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So this Cornelius was a devout man who feared God. Now, I think most people seem to agree what we mean by devout. Devout probably is kind of reference that he led his family in this way. The fact that he feared God, he was a God-fearer, not probably, not probably a full-blown proselyte. He really hadn't converted to Judaism. So if you really wanted to convert to Judaism, think about it. Okay, in the Old Testament, if I say, I realize the God of Israel is a true God, and I want to you know, follow him, what did you do? You got circumcised. I mean, that was one big thing. And then you started doing what? You followed the Israeli laws, the Israeli customs. You like kind of, you didn't just like have a new belief system, maybe more, may we describe more like in Christianity, but you actually like changed your, you know, your culture and, and whatnot. You probably likely would no longer um, be, um, I, I think you'd probably even follow the Israelite king, possibly. I mean, it's like you were like converting big time into the serious way. And so this is not what Cornelius was. He, he did fear God. He seemed to have some kind of understanding of the God of Israel, but he wouldn't have been like a full-blown convert at this point. And it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... So likely Cornelius seems to be engaged in prayer. It's just 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This would be a normal time of prayer. And God comes and calls Cornelius by name. And you know, I'd like to bring up two things, and we'll go over them again later. But the first is, now Cornelius wouldn't be considered in the club, would he? He's not a Jew. He's not, he's not in the club. He, he wasn't born to the right family. He wasn't assigned the right team at camp. He was an outsider. And you know, God knows him. God comes to him, calls him by name. All this time that Cornelius has been seeking after God, God has known who he was. You know, sometimes, we'll talk about this more, but 
we feel like we're not in the club. I just want to encourage you that God knows you. We go on to verse 4. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? So once again, we see this fairly common response that we see when people see an angel or something like this. Or God, the Lord appears. We are scared. This is how he is. He's very afraid. And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God has heard the prayers of Cornelius. The outsider, the guy that's not part of the special club, God knows him, and God hears his prayers. And now send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And so what he commands him to do is to send people to go and have Peter come. These people he's supposed to send are likely people that work for him or they're under him within the military ranks, and he's... Is, and the, He's commanded to send these men. He's commanded to send them to Joppa, which is about 30 miles away, and they likely would have went on horseback. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He tries to be specific in telling him who he's supposed to go and talk to. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier among them who attended him and had related these, everything to them. He sent them to Joppa. He's commanded, and what does he do after he's commanded? He obeys. He obeys. You know, this is just kind of the intro. This is kind of setting us up for this incredible change. Maybe in the next few weeks we'll talk some more about the nerdy theology of whatnot of this change between you know, Israel and the church. But today I just want to come up with a few principles as we think about this person, this Cornelius this person that was on the outside looking in, and you say, how does a guy like Cornelius commune with God? And the first thing is this. There's no elite club to be born into. There's no elite club to be born into. You know, I probably said before, my dad always joked when I was a kid, I could never be president because he didn't know the right people, Right? Oh, I don't have enough connections. You, you wouldn't be president. He kind of joked with me. But sometimes we feel that in our life, you know. Like, how do you go to Stanford? Number one best thing to get into Stanford, the number one best quality to have to go to the University of Stanford, have a parent that went to Stanford. That is the number one thing you can do to get to Stanford. Guess what you have to do to have that, right? Be born in the right club. And there's sometimes we feel like, man, I, I just, I'm just not in the right situation. There's all these things I can't control, and I've been put in a situation that isn't good. And i just like to point you to Cornelius. You know, when you want to be a part of the family of God, when you want to be a part of his church, you don't have to worry about your parents or where you were born, your education. None of those things matter. Second point, God knows you. God knows you. Who was Cornelius in the world of Judaism? Nobody. He wasn't even a proselyte. And God knew him. And sometimes we think, oh, I'm young or 
I'm old. I'm nobody. Why would God care about me? God knows who you are. And God cares about you. You know, Cornelius was probably an older guy, likely because he was in some sort of position of authority within the military. It's likely he wasn't that young. And how many times do you think God had come and talked to him before this? Probably a good fat zero, right? All that time he spent praying, all that time he spent being devout, what did he probably think? God even know I'm here. God even care about me? Why would he? Sometimes time goes by and it just feels like forever and we just feel like God doesn't know about us and God doesn't care about us. But I think we see in Cornelius, even though it was years before God came to him, God knew him. Next is, you know, God hears your prayers. You know, sometimes we pray for someone for years and I wasted my time. I wasted my time. You know, ironically, Cornelius might have prayed more than we, some of us do, you know. Guy that probably wasn't even a true convert. Prayed and prayed. What good is it? What good is it? Let me encourage you. We don't know God's timing. God knows his timing. We don't know all the pieces that go where they go. But God hears our prayers. You know, when you're a kid, this is how you think prayer works. You go to your mom, you're asked for a cookie. She says, likely no, unless it's snack time, and then she says yes, and you have a cookie, and that's it. You get older, and you realize life's complicated. When you pray to God for something, it's not as simple as, yes, I'm going to do this right now at this moment because you asked me. Right? God knows so much better. He knows better the question than one we even asked. Our complaints, our fears often are not even the ones that we really should be bringing. And God knows. God hears. So if you feel like you've been praying about something for your whole life, maybe you have a family member, maybe you have a kid, maybe you have a grandkid that seems to be off the way or, or something happening, and you feel like God's never hearing me. God heard Cornelius and hears you too. Final thing, don't hesitate to obey. Don't hesitate to obey. You know, sometimes you complain, oh, I'm not sure what to do, 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 and then the opportunity comes. It's right before us. We know we should do it. It's the right thing to do. It's the thing we've been, we think we've been wanting the whole time thing we think we've been asking for, the opportunity to do the right thing, we're not so sure. We hesitate. When God has something that you know you should be doing, don't hesitate. Do it. Do it. Cornelius, after all these years, after all this praying, after all this time being on the outside looking in, when God finally came to him, he didn't mess around. He did, his, he did what God asked him. I think we should do the same.
Well, I'd, I'd like us to think about a f- certain thing here. I, I know I've kind of made f- four points, but I'd like us to think about this specifically. You know, Cornelius was brought in to this group, right? You know, he was on the outside looking in, and he was brought in. And I'd like us to think, are there people I'm shoving out because I view them as not in my club? Say, what club? We make clubs. We make the dumbest clubs in the whole world. What, you don't play cards with us once a night on Monday nights, once a month? You're not in the club. The super special club, right? That we definitely don't let women in, do we, Natalie? Mm -mm. (laughs) The sexist card club, right? We make clubs out of just bonkersness. I could think this week, are there people we're, we're pushing out that we're not ministering to in the way we should because we've drawn some imaginary line, some, some silly line that tomorrow could be redrawn and we'd forget why we draw the first one in the first place. It's so easy to do. The madness of crowds, you know. You ask a soldier when he's done or she's done something really crazy in war and they've, they interview him, and they just can't believe they did it, right? We just get ourselves in situations, we get a part of a group, and we just, we just start acting like we shouldn't. And I just encourage us, just think, is there, is there any way that maybe I'm, I put myself in a club and I've just started acting crazy? I'm, I mean, hope, hopefully not, hopefully not. Wiping anybody out crazy, but, you know, crazy in the sense that's like, why, should, why am I acting this way? That I just draw a line? Doesn't matter. I'd love to say what it would be for you, but, you know, this is kind of one of those situations that every one of us is so different. I could never even imagine all the ways in your life that you might have been struggling with this. This is a time where we have to count on the Holy Spirit to come and convict us and say, huh, The pastor would never know that I've been doing this. The pastor would never even be able to guess. The Holy Spirit can convict us in ways which no no preacher or anybody else could. I just pray that the Holy Spirit might come and convict any of us today that might be saying, hey, man, I've really been drawing lines and pushing people away. It's not something God would want. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We just pray that as we go into this very incredible transition, starting here with Cornelius, and we'll go on and uh, talk about Peter, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to understand, Lord, that you have made it so each one of us has an opportunity to come to you. We have an opportunity, if we are willing to humble ourselves, to come to you. And I just pray that we would not take that opportunity lightly, that we would not Make ourselves so pompous, so so arrogant that we think we don't need you. That we think we the madness of crowds would never affect us. I just pray that we would be humble and realize that we do need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.